I'll be presenting on our reform mission work in the Philippines, and I'll open with reading Psalm 67. For the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and lead the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Last time we were here to visit Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church, the uh, congregation was much smaller. So at this point for our visit this time, we will be introducing ourselves to all of you who don't know who we are. It's been five years since we've been here. So my name is Nate, my wife Jella is here, and we are here with our two children, Jael and Nehemiah Ryle. And we've arrived uh, about two months ago from our work in the, there we go, Philippines. And as some background, I was not always Presbyterian, as Providence would have it. I was actually ordained and sent as a missionary by Calvary Chapel, if any of you are familiar with that non-denominational denomination. And I was involved in missions from 2010 to 2012, and eventually leaving that pragmatic outreach-only form of ministry Upon returning to the States to apply for my wife's fiance visa, I began attending Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. Mark Russell, the pastoral intern at the time, invited me, and I thought I should find out what these Presbyterian people are. I have no clue what that is. I thought only Roman Catholics baptized babies, you know. And so I started attending the Presbyterian Church, and Pastor Tim was preaching how Jesus runs the church at that time. Because at that time also, they were electing deacons and elders. And God's perfect timing for me to be introduced to Presbyterianism. And so my wife and I, when we got married in 2013, we eventually became members of SMPC. And so my wife and I have been working in the Philippines. And that country is predominantly Roman Catholic there was a recent census, actually, in 2020, and so those who responded, 78.8% are Roman Catholic, and Presbyterians don't even make the list. <laughs> I'm not sure where they would fit under, but it's a generally a Roman Catholic country. It's very rooted there, and where we are in the country is right smack in the middle where that circle is there. We are in a central location called Dumaguete City in the province Negros Oriental. It's a university town. It's not a chaotic metropolis like Manila in the north or even 
some of the cities in the south. It's more provincial. And this central part of the country hasn't been well served by missions at all. Usually the north gets all the attention. Everybody has heard of Manila, probably. But missions doesn't really touch the middle part of the country, at least not the good kind. There are other Reformed churches in the Philippines, some who have been there for over 20 to 30 years. But they're usually in the north or in the south. Again, there's not much healthy reformed work going on in the middle part of the country where we are located, or even on the islands right next to us, believe it or not. And so in 2014, I had an idea for a study center of sorts, a Christian study center that would better serve the area that we live in and providing Christian education and training for that part of the country. I was greatly inspired by Labrie Fellowship, if you're familiar with the work of Francis Schaefer, and actually Labrie Ministries, which started in the same way as a residential study center. And I wanted a confessional Presbyterian institution of that sort. And so in 2014, we founded Christian Worldview Discipleship, training you to develop, demonstrate, and defend the Christian worldview. And as I became more acquainted with the surrounding area, I had been there since 2009, but with my exposure with more kinds of churches there, it became clear that a confessionally reformed education and training for pastors and men who want to be pastors was largely lacking. The seminaries there are not confessional, no matter what part of the country you go to. You're not going to find a sound education and training for the ministry like you would here in this country where there are so many options. And so training for the ministry specifically was a special need that I wanted to attempt to meet. Because as goes the pulpit, so go the churches. And ministers really need to be trained to do their duty, especially if they profess to be Reformed or Presbyterian. And so training in pastoral ministry, especially in the areas of the Westminster Standards, Reform worship and Christ-centered expository preaching, all of which have not been doing very well. And so we founded that, and our long-term vision was to establish a confessionally reformed study center to provide a quality library, regular lectures, annual seminars, and to produce multimedia resources. Church planting was going to wait, and we wanted to sort of make a work that was available for anyone who wanted to avail of it. And then, eventually, I became acquainted with the Presbyterian Church of the Philippines, and this would have been around 2017. The Presbyterian Church of the Philippines, which is the largest, uh, almost the only pres Presbyterian denomination in that country, uh, a contact of mine referred me to Dumaguete Mission Church in Dumaguete City for us to attend. And fairly quickly, I was given the opportunity to teach in various areas, teach at the high school. I chose to teach the Westminster Shorter Catechism for the values education there. I was invited to teach Sunday school for the church, the Shorter Catechism again. And then eventually I was invited to teach at the local seminary which is supposed to be a Presbyterian seminary, 
and I taught the Westminster Standards and various other classes to those who were already pastoring or aspiring to the ministry. And I would fill the pulpit when needed and began training the son of the minister of that church. His name is Joshua Bagas. And I began training him in, in the standards and various aspects of reformed theology and worship. But because of the ministers and especially the Korean missionary influence there, reformed work doesn't really get far unless <laughs> you're in charge of the congregation. And so the worship would remain fairly evangelical. The, the preaching wasn't uh, sequential expository preaching. Can you imagine a Presbyterian church that only does topical preaching? That's what it was. And that's what they generally all are throughout the country, shockingly. And so when we came here and visited last time in Dumaguete City and were worshiping for a period of time here at Spring Meadows, back when we were still in the school, I was like, I can't go back to a non-reformed form of worship. I'm tired of being angry every Lord's Day <laughs> and hearing about saints and papist traditions and Roman Catholic holidays. I can't do it. And it's not good for our children either. And so we decided not to return to that congregation until things had changed. And then while here visiting in 2019, I met with the, the session and Pastor Tim and the, uh, the next steps decided for me were I needed seminary to get that piece of paper to open more doors for support for our work and also a missions agency because up until then I didn't have one. Since leaving Calvary Chapel, I didn't have a missions facilitator or agency. And so the search for that began in 2019 and extended until we were back in the Philippines later on in that year. And providentially, I ended up running into Heidelberg Theological Seminary. Uh, a couple people in the Philippines came to one of my conferences. It was 2019. We were doing a Doctrines of Grace conference to, to uh, commemorate the anniversary of the Canons of Dort and the Synod of Dort. And a few people from Manila and Luzon, excuse me, from Luzon and Mindanao, north and south part of the country, ended up coming to meet me and told me about this seminary that had a program in the Philippines and invited me to some intensive classes that would be going on later that year. And so I thought, hey, this might be it because it needs to be seminary that won't cost an arm and a leg like <laughs> residential seminaries here, but also it needed to be a seminary um, that I could do completely online because I wasn't gonna leave the country for an extended period of time anymore. And so I ended up going down there and speaking to the seminary professor who had come to the Philippines to teach the classes in person, talked to him, and then through our communication, I ended up being accepted and enrolled in the seminary in late 2019, with the tuition continuing to be paid for the good session of Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. And it's almost finished. <laughs> it's almost over, as soon as we can swing all my classes that remain as quickly as possible. And then soon around that same time, Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship. We had run into somebody, well, during our time here whose parents were missionaries with Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship, and I ended up communicating with them, getting their material, and really liking 
what I was reading there. It applied to uh, a couple other missions agency. One turned us down and didn't want to do any work in the Philippines at all. And then another just didn't get back to me. So providentially, Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship turned out to be the way to go. And upon reading their position papers on various key issues, I really felt that this is the right fit. It's a solid, confessional, bare-bones, minimalistic missions agency. And it's, it's actually older than the PCA. It began in 1958, founded by Reverend William E. Hill, originally called Presbyterian Evangelistic Fellowship. And I was, by God's grace, accepted as a full-time evangelist in 2019. And so both of those crucial needs were met for us. And then back in the PCP, as I try to catch up our slides here, that's the seminary, Heidelberg, and uh, intensive classes earlier this year. I went up to the Luzon area, Panganisan, Dagupan City, to take a couple classes. And that's what I look like all the time. This is at four in the morning, and notice I'm not alone in class. Uh, we have an auditor in my house. I think he should be granted an honorary Masters of Divinity by the time we're done, because he attended enough of it. And then this is us right now, currently. That's me in the top middle, and then underneath me, straight down the row are, straight down the column rather, are two guys from my church who are also taking their Master of Divinity. So it's 2020 now, and the government has told churches to stop worshiping, and then churches who are considering opening back up are considering not allowing people such as my pregnant wife to worship anymore and my child. And so I get back in contact with Joshua from that PCP church. I said, hey, are you guys open for worship? And he said, yeah. I said, for children too? He's like, oh yeah, all the kids are here. I said, excellent. What's your order of worship look like now? And he sent me the previous Sunday's order of worship and it was great. All the evangelical nonsense, you know, unbelievers singing songs, solo numbers, stuff like that is, is gone. I was like, wonderful, we'll see you next Sunday. And he had been actually handed the church by his father, who, who decided to pastor another congregation in another area. And so he was able to clean up the order of worship and he was preaching every Lord's Day now and had actually become quite comfortable in the pulpit. And so thus we were reconnected with that congregation and the opportunity for further reforming the church was opened up to us once again. And so then began the project of aligning that congregation with the Westminster Standards and the Book of Church Order. Here's the ironic thing about the Presbyterian Church of the Philippines. The official standards are almost the same as the standards of the PCA. They're the Westminster Standards, the American Revised Editions. And then the Directory for Worship, the Book of Government, and the Book of Discipline are based on the BCOs of Presbyterian denominations here in the United States, the PCA and the OPC, actually. So the standards are fine. The problem is always application. <laughs> the problem is whether anybody cares to follow them. And so every step of the way, with patient instruction and teaching of the congregation, there was a checking and a citing of chapter and paragraph of the Constitution of the Church, getting rid of everything that didn't fit and actually instituting those things that should have been there for the past 30 years. 
That was the program. But of course, that didn't fly with the powers that be. But this was a gradual process over about uh, two years' time. I was training Joshua in preaching, and we together preached an ecclesiology series, like how I had been introduced to Presbyterianism those years ago. We taught on the church, church government, the offices, the means of grace. New information to everybody, even those who had been there for over a decade. We started church membership class. Membership had never been implemented, nor has it been implemented in any of the other churches in that denomination in that area. And then along to supplement that, we, be, we were continuing our annual conferences, apologetics, reformation conference, that would be this month, <laughs> and uh, podcasting as well on various topics such as preaching and apologetics and Christian worldview. Along with this, also partnering with a couple other, with another church in a, a reformed church, Continental Reformed Church, the other part of the country, and with another ministry, I began leading book lectures, which many of our people attended, reading classics such as Redemption, Accomplished and Applied by John Murray, The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson, several Puritan works, and we're in the middle of longer ones now. I'm also doing a series on Calvin's Institutes. We finished book two just before I got here. And then we'll be beginning Building a Godly Home by William Gouge, volume two, when I get back. And so a lot of good stuff is going, a lot of growth, a lot of uh, enthusiasm for learning more sound theology and practice. Now all this was going well until May of 2022, where the powers that be, namely, the missionary who founded this church savagely opposed our local reformation. And we were swiftly kicked out of the building. And so we decided to change our name and call ourselves something else, something more accurate, something clear and descriptive of what we were as a church. And we decided unanimously I have a helper in one of my book studies often, as you see there. We decided to call ourselves Reformed Presbyterian Church of Dumaguete because that's actually what we were, a Presbyterian church that was nominal in name only, but that had been reformed according to the word of God and brought into alignment with <laughs> the standards that define what Presbyterianism is. We are a Reformed Presbyterian church. And it's also easy to locate, because when anybody wants to find a Reformed church, what do you search on Facebook? Reformed church in Dumaguete City, right? Or Google it. And we're the only one that pops up. And so immediately more people started showing up who had been waiting for a Reformed church for years and years. And anybody who would visit, or anybody in other parts of the country who knew people close to us, began referring people to our church. So new name, had to scramble to find an office space to rent every Lord's Day. We rent by the hour. We still do. And it resulted in immediate and steady growth, not just numerically, but spiritually as well. When you just trust the ordinary means of grace, there is fruit from it. Getting rid of all the gimmicks and sticking with the simple reading and preaching of the word of God, the singing of psalms and hymns, dedicating sufficient time to public prayer 
in the worship service. Things that people in the United States generally take for granted, especially if you've been in the Reformed or Presbyterian world for any length of time. Imagine going to church and not hearing the gospel preached on Sunday. And it, when it does happen, it happens by accident. Imagine not singing psalms or hymns ever. That's the kind of setting that we are in over there. So what we were doing was very different and very unique, even though it's what Presbyterianism should be. What we were doing was removing all the innovations and going back to what a Presbyterian church should be. But of course, that was an innovation <laughs> to what passed for Presbyterian missions there. And it made certain people very angry. And so we proceeded with our local Reformation church officer training, one of my favorite things to do. Oh, first service in our new location right there. That's myself and Joshua before the worship service. Those are those in attendance, our bulletin. Membership interviewing, the pastor. Acting pastor was the first interviewee. And then my wife and I were the second one. And then our covenanting service, starting with 18 communing members together. First baptism. Oh, look who it is. My son, Ryle, was the first baptism. And then 18 of us, not including him and my daughter, were the first recipients of the Lord's Supper as a congregation. That's what our typical order of worship looks like now. We've got call to worship, the invocation, sequential reading of scripture, whole Old Testament chapter, whole chapter of the New Testament, Westminster Confession, Psalms, responsively reading the Ten Commandments, Confession of Sin, Prayer of Confession, Assurance of Pardon, Hymn of Thanks, Preaching, Hymn of Response, Pastoral Prayer. It's going to be about 10 minutes, typically. Offering Doxology, Lord's Prayer, and then Benediction. And so we're doing really well with the RPC men reading books together, the ladies as well reading books together. They're currently in Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods while we are here. And then church officer training. Our standards are what officers have to subscribe to, so I was teaching the Westminster standards synchronized to them, which is something that I taught in seminary years before. That was about a 70-hour course right there. And we also, the uh, elder candidates, myself and our wives, went up to Manila and met Mark Jones, who was the latest speaker at a theology conference up there on knowing sin. That was a good time for us. One of our graphic designers drew that when he took his membership vows. Very significant because a lot of our people are transfers from uh, <laughs> either very shallow churches or cults. You know, women pastors, prosperity gospel, if you don't tithe, you go to hell, that kind of thing. And so when these people come to our worship service and they hear so much Bible in an hour and a half's time, and they hear a sequential expository Christ-centered sermon, no matter what passage of scripture it is, when they sing psalms for the first time in their life, like whoever thought of that, sing the psalms, what? <laughs> and hymns. Songs that aren't heretical, when there's a significant time applied to prayer, and when elders actually get involved in their life, it's like being on a different planet, and it's something incredibly refreshing to them, to the point where they can't wait to get their family there 
and this guy specifically, he, he drives two hours, he and his fiance, four hours round trip. And he's bringing his mother now and his sister and his brother. That's what people will do when they finally encounter real Christ-centered reform worship. Two-hour round trip. One of our pr prospective elders, he worked on a different island as a fireman, and he would cross the water on Sunday morning to come worship to, with us when, during his off time. Because we're the only place that does it, sadly. And hopefully that won't last for very long. Also, pre-marriage counseling. This December, I got uh, two couples, that, two more couples that are going to be married. So it's good ordinary ministry that's happening. Finally, solid reform worship being the foundation. And so our church has grown very tight. Our membership has expanded. We now got 30 members in that amount of time. Almost the entire congregation is in our house around my table every Sunday afternoon to eat lunch together, to discuss the sermon, to continue in fellowship, have a Bible study on occasion, or listen to a lecture series of some kind. Hospitality is very central to our church culture there. But all of this was out of step with the Presbyterian denomination. And so recently, only in August, <laughs> Uh, just before August, end of, end of July, we were as a whole excommunicated from the presbytery without a single formal charge, in fact. And so in the beginning of August, over two Sundays, we particularized as a congregation because the presbytery until that time had blocked those people who were elected to serve as officers. Imagine that, electing your five elders here and then the presbytery being like, no, <laughs> we don't acknowledge doesn't matter what you want. doesn't matter if you're following the church constitution. No. But mostly through ignoring, not even direct communication. So once out, we were finally able to wrap things up and particularize as a local congregation. The congregation unanimously called me to serve as the pastor. And then having elected Joshua, who I've been training for years now, and JR, the firefighter, I ordained them as elders of the church and we've got our eyes on a couple deacon candidates as well and so finally after that long span of conflict with a nominal fake presbyterian denomination we can finally we're finally established as a confessional presbyterian church and the sad thing is we're not the only ones in the country this has happened before we're only the latest it's happened over years and years uh, Friends on, friends on Facebook, right? <laughs> With a minister who left the same denomination a decade ago. It's been like this ever since. Presbyterianism really didn't start on the right foot in that country because of the different denominations involved from various countries. It's too bad, but hopefully a presbytery that is confessional and faithful can be established soon. In fact, the PCP just had their general assembly two weeks ago and squashed any debate about making female pastors an official position in the denomination. An entire presbytery wrote something to, to the General Assembly, but debate and discussion isn't even allowed. That's the state of the so-called Presbyterian church there. And so I anticipate that it won't be much longer 
for the only a dozen confessional ministers to either stick it out and get kicked out over time or just walk away because it's clear that any vigilance for doctrine and any faithfulness to the Westminster standards is unacceptable and won't be allowed. So we'll see what happens. Should God bless our work, we hope to expand locally, but also I hope that other confessional congregations throughout the country will join together to form a faithful presbytery and form a new church. Because Presbyterians don't have options about where to go. There are a handful of continental reform denominations. They, they've got options. But anybody who subscribes to the Westminster Standards is the PCP pretty much or it. So. so that's what's going on and that's what we do. That's where we are as uh, a church and that's what our <laughs> life has looked like for the past few years. And so we desperately need your prayers and your support as well. Got a QR code there through uh, Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship. And I want to close my time and then open it up for questions. But I want to conclude with a statement that resonated with me by the founder of Reformed Fellow Evangelistic Fellowship, Bill Hill. From a sermon he delivered at the convocation where they were deciding whether to begin the PCA, which, as you know, was a withdrawal from a liberal Presbyterian denomination, the Southern Presbyterian denomination. And at that, he delivered this message, the no compromise man and the no compromise church. And he said something that sounds familiar to me. I can relate to it. All through life, we face dreaded decisions. I'm thinking now of a group of men who are deliberating and wrestling in prayer and conference about a decision for the future. They said, what if it means the end of our organization? What if it means that our friends will leave us? What if it means, uh, excuse me, but they made their decision deliberately regardless of what the consequences might be, regardless of what the power structure might do, regardless of threats from Presbyterians and General Assembly. Without compromise, they decide to go forward and not look back. Hardly ever does any man face a decision quite as momentous as we are facing today. There are those who say this movement might fail, it might fragment, we might lose our church property, we might be branded as schismatics. Bitterness and recrimination might follow our decision. What will we do? Considering the possible tragic consequences, but despite such possibilities, leaving everything in God's hands, we must make a clear and unfaltering decision that we will not compromise with unbelief and immorality in high places in the church. The no compromised man never in such decisions takes into consideration possible evil consequences to himself. He is bound by the word of God as he sees it, he must obey God, not men. Does the word of God preach separation from unbelief and apostasy, separation from immorality? Is our task that of preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth? Can we do it best in a reborn church, faithful to the scripture and to the reformed faith and obedient to the last command? That is the mindset of myself and the other er elders and our congregation as a whole. Imagine the United States during the time when the OPC and Westminster was being begun, when the PCA was being begun because of the liberalizing of the main denominations. That's where the Philippines is at right now. We're just a little behind, but that's the environment. 
And so what's called for is no compromise men to found no compromise churches. And that's where hopefully the Lord will work and it will expand. So now for the next almost 15 minutes, I'll take any questions you might have. Yes, sir. Yeah, the Philippines has two national languages, Filipino and English. And especially in the city where we live, where there are universities, higher education is taught in English. That's mandatory. And so English is actually the preferred language where we are. Yeah, so language is used for almost everything. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So I agree with you. In the Philippines, there's really, we're behind. I have to admit that too, because I grew up in an evangelical church where I actually talked to my mentor who is now yearning towards reformed theology. And sadly, I won't say sadly because I was saved through, um, you know, the Billy Graham Crusades in the 80s and all that. And that's the thing though, in the Philippines, there's hunger. There truly is hunger for God. And we are conquered by Spain 300 years, so false, we're, we're Catholic majority of the country. The three major islands, Catholicism is just dominant there. Growing up, I remember our church was just like yours. 30 people, our family, we started with persecution and all that. And uh, it's, it's beautiful to see how the Lord now turned into that small church into 500, 500 members. Amazingly. So my, my heart was so happy when I talked to my mentor saying, they even went, I don't know, Nate, if you're familiar with the Koreans, the Presbyterian churches that are just like doing that now. Yeah. They were so hungry for the Reformed theology that they even went to Korea and got connected. I'm not familiar with the, what's that? Philippine, uh, what was that? The, Repub the one that Reformed Presbyterian Church of the Philippines. He never mentioned that in our conversation. But what's your take about, um, there are in Luzon, I'm from Luzon, they go to Korea and that's where they're getting their education. And I know they also have some courses that they take online that are connected here in the US. But just a background, the Philippines, Presbyterianism is not a popular, you know. John and I were researching about it. It was James Rogers that arrived in the Philippines and it, he made it ecumenical work that he opened it to Baptist, Methodists, and all that. So what you're saying is just that right. it's true. There's no pure Presbyterian church in the Philippines. And I admire what you're doing there, Nate. I, I think the Philippines really need that because it's just so much. We embrace everything. I'm sad that, that the Filipinos are, you know, all this, you know, um, get well, rich, you know, their own jet plane flying to the Philippines and poor Filipinos who believe, oh yeah, give me 20,000 pesos and your son will heal. They believe that because unfortunately, yep. that's, that's the thing that's happening there. So I agree with you, Nate. Philippines is way behind. We just sent, with the help of Pastor Tim and Shemaine, we sent 100 um, shorter catechism to our church there. Cool. They are hungry for that. 
And I'm so happy that 100 children right now are handling and memorizing those catechisms because they need it. Now that I'm open with, with you know, uh, Reformed theology, I'm like, where were we in the history <laughs> of the world when this happened? So yeah. I applaud you, Nate. I'm thankful that God sent you there. And I hope that you'll connect yourself to as you expand in Manila, in the Philippines. Because there are spots in the Philippines that I'm sure wanted to hear more of your ministry there and want to connect, connect with the real Reformed theology education. Yeah. Thanks for that. Nate, you mentioned about uh, being uh, your facility being weekly. Is it a solid option for you, or is it something where that could change? Where we gather for worship? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's solid. It's a, it's a business that is closed on Sunday. And so we, we just rent their, their conference room uh, for, I think, two hours every, every Sunday. And it's, it's a sure thing, but it's not enough because we don't have the budget to rent all day so that we can have a second worship service, as we should, as Presbyterians on the Lord's Day. Uh, but also, it's not by the month so that the other stuff that we do as a congregation, we got no place for it. It has to be in somebody's house or out somewhere and, you know, money, money, money. So uh, we really need a, a better place to rent, one that is, is ours every day of the week so, so that we can, we can do more. And, you know, it's just easier for everybody. Because where, where that office is, is right smack in the middle of the city. It's downtown Dumaguete. It's central. So everybody who drives an hour to two hours from other municipalities, the, the stop for the public transportation is just a short walk from where we meet for worship. So we don't want to move out of that area. We, we need to be there because it's easiest for everybody to come because people are coming from other technically towns and cities to worship with us. So we need to be there. But, but we need a place there that we rent by the month, ideally so that it continues to be easier. You know, it's difficult enough driving for two hours. <laughs> Don't want to add to it, you know what I mean? So yeah, we, we need a better place, we really do. What would the cost of a place like that be, a monthly cost? We looked at places before. Do you remember how much the, the upper story office spaces were that we were looking at? Yeah. It was 30,000 pesos, wasn't it, a month? Yeah, 30,000 pesos a month, a month divided by 53, let's say, one, two, three, divided by 53 equals, that'd be $566, less than 600, maybe $600 US, yeah, per month for renting, yeah. That'll be a prayer for us for you. All right, thank you for that. Yes. Excellent question. It's owned by the Korean missionary group, not the denomination, but the missionary organization. And it has that their name is on all the various properties that they've built. Some of them just empty buildings. <laughs> and and so th they were able to 
prevent us from meeting in, in any of those because we, we didn't go along with women pastors and we, women deacons and stuff like that. So out, out of the mission group, out of the buildings. Yeah, good question. It is 10, 10, five minutes. Yes, sir. Nate, you, you had mentioned that there's uh, continentally formed congregations and there's options for them. What's your relationship like with them? How, uh, how well do you guys get along? Is that something you can look we at? Get along, we get along well. The, the Heidelberg Theological Seminary program is virtually for the Pearl of the Orient Covenant Reformed Churches there. And so uh, all of my classmates, except for two guys in, in my church, all the rest are part of that continental reform denomination. And we, we see each other at, at conferences. We correspond sometimes. We're, we're on good terms, yeah. You have another question? No, I'm just wondering, uh, are, are, is it something where you need to consider, like, hey, maybe participate with them, or? Uh, in what way? In terms of bow the knee to the Heidelberg and just move on. Uh, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I don't really want to downgrade from the w from the Westminster Catechisms to the Heidelberg. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, sir. What? What? Do you want to say something? That's right. It, some of you probably know that I avail of free books from from TGC and Crossway. Over the years, I've done that. Those Continental Reform guys are always my first recipients for, for the free pastoral resources that I get. I'm shipping boxes to all those people uh, whenever I can. So we're, on, we're good friends. But as far as being one in a church, that's, that's not the best option before us. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm curious how you ended up in Tumadete. I would think if you're the only Reformed church in the Philippines as a whole, why no one, or you all originally, why no one centered in the larger population centers like Manila, Luzon, just, just, I, I was just curious about that because you normally think you'd go where the most fruit is to pick. And I, I just was curious about that. That's a good, good question, putting it that way. Part of it's just biographical for me. I, on a whim, decided to go on a short-term mission trip, you know, spiritual vacation, for, for two weeks to the Philippines when, when I was in high school. And we went to Manila, and it was absolutely stressful, <laughs> just walking outside. And then we went to Dumaguete, which is, you know, Forbes, in Forbes' top five retirement locations in the world. It's amazing. You know, all y'all who might be approaching retirement, Hawaii is too expensive, come to Dumaguete. Okay, <laughs> you'll, have, you'll have a church. And uh, Dumaguete is wonderful. You know, I, I loved it there and I wanted to go back. And then I was still in Calvary Chapel, so I finished my, my Bible college at the campus there. And I never wanted to leave. There are five universities there. And one of them being Silliman University, which is famous in the country and in surrounding Asia. Students from other countries go there. I mean, you don't have to travel to a bunch of countries to reach them if you're in Dumaguete City. As far as missions is concerned, I don't know why more churches haven't tapped that place. 
up until now. I, I consider it perfect for international ministry because of the student body population there by itself. And, you know, the people there have souls too. Manila gets all the attention. You know, it's, it's almost cliche. You know, the Philippines is Manila. No. <laughs> it's like the, the smaller areas, they need the gospel as much as everybody else. They need sound confessional churches as much as everybody else. Manila, there's a lot of churches there that are sharing the work, and they're planting and they're multiplying. Manila's covered as far as I'm concerned. So is Mindanao. But Negros Oriental, Negros Occidental, Cebu, Bohol, those places, what do they got? Hardly anything. So it's, it's time for the central part of the country, in my mind. Does that answer your question? Cool, thank you. All right, with one minute on the clock. Yes, sir. We worshiped anyway in uh, June of 2020. Yeah, Joshua opened it up and where, where we had been attending previously wasn't going to and was gonna you know, excommunicate most of their members by not letting them worship. So <laughs> I decided to go and go back to Joshua's, Joshua's church and help him out there and bring our kids, invite all the pregnant people, all the children. And uh, we discovered the secret to church growth was being open for worship. <laughs> and we had a pretty sound, you know, full house from 2020 all the way through until, you know, everyone felt comfortable, everyone else. So, yeah, for, for those two years, it was a, a good time of, of growth and establishment for us as a congregation. Yeah. Yeah, for, for some of that time we were on our motorcycle. It, you know, it was, it, was, it was me, Jael in the middle, and my pregnant wife on the motorcycle, you know, blasting through checkpoints and nobody was there. <laughs> the, the, the threat wasn't, wasn't uh, so real. So yeah, we, we worshiped. We had a police officer in our congregation, too. It was fine. No problem. He needed church, too. <laughs> All right. It's 1016. That's our time. Thank you for listening. And I'm, of course, I'm here all morning <laughs> if you want to come and speak to me or my wife. <laughs>